But today we dive into Philippians chapter 1 and chapter 3 and we'll hopefully emerge with sentence number 1. Number 1 in priority, number 1 in order, number 1 in urgency. We want to be a church with a radical focus on Jesus. I met Amanda, my wife, the summer between my freshman year and sophomore year of college. We had a few people who were trying to arrange the dating scenario. Both of us were resisting. I was resisting because I had never seen a picture of her. Had I seen a picture, I would have immediately given up my resistance. We finally met uh, one weekend, but we met in the context of this internship that we were doing and a community project we were leading. And so there were all these people around. But as soon as I met her, I knew there was energy, at least from my end. But because there were so many people around, there was not a smooth way to say to her, I think that you are pretty and you are lovely and you seem nice and you didn't run away when I talked to you earlier. So I'd like to get to know you a little bit more. There there wasn't a smooth way to say that. And so we found ourselves at Applebee's one night, as people often do, and we were there with six other friends, and the whole time I'm thinking, I really just want to be at this Applebee's with her. Um, well, that's not possible. Then the bill comes, and I think, you know what I would really like? I'd like to pay for her meal. But, you know, I can't say to the waiter, we've just met, hey, put her meal and my meal on the same ticket, and I got that one, and let the rest of these jokers fend for themselves. You know, there's just... You couldn't do that. And so the dilemma was, do we just split it up or do I pay for everyone's meal as a way to pay for her meal? But, you know, the sad thing is she's not going to know. It's not like I'm going to take the check and then like wink at her across the table. So it's just a gesture that only Jesus and I are going to know, I guess. But I'm thinking, you know, because it was a big deal for me because just a few days before, just the week before, my bank account had gotten into single digits, which is a really special feeling if you've not had the privilege of, of that. It's, uh, it's good. Thankfully, I had gotten paid since then, but I, I had a job. It wasn't a good job. I got paid randomly. Thankfully, my parents were a safety net for me, but they believed you have a job and you should pay for most of the things in your life. So I'd gotten paid, but I'm thinking and estimating what the check is going to be. And then I'm trying to estimate how much money I have in my bank account. And, you know, do I want to, as a grand gesture that no one will know, use up half of every dime that I have to my name? And I decided it was worth it. So I paid for everybody's food. Why? For her sake, I did that. And you've all said that phrase at some point or another. I don't want to do this, but for her sake, for his sake, for my children's sake, for my employees' sake, for my company's sake. And the Apostle Paul uses the word sake four times in the book of Philippians. And he refers to something that he does or the Philippians should do for the sake of Jesus. This is what he says in chapter 1, verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And in chapter 3, verse 7, 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Now I think it would be helpful as we jump into Philippians here, if we knew a little bit about what was happening to Paul and to the Philippians as he's writing this. Uh, First, Paul was in prison as he writes this letter. Chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. You can see on this map, we believe Paul was in prison in Rome, and from his imprisonment in Rome, he's writing to the Philippians who are in Philippi in Greece. Number two, his prison guards have learned of Jesus. Verse 13, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that his imprisonment is for Christ. Number three, other Christians have been inspired By his imprisonment, verse 14, and most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So other people have looked at Paul and the fact that he's willing to go to prison for Jesus' sake and and they said to themselves, we can do more. We can have more boldness because we see it in Paul. Number four, he is writing to thank them for a, a gift that they sent him in prison. You remember prison in these days did not care to care for their prisoners. So it really fell on friends and families of those prisoners to keep them well supplied. And the Philippians had sent something to Paul like a care package. In chapter 4, verse 18, he says, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Number five, he updates them on the health of their messenger, Epaphroditus. So what happened was the Philippians sent a care package to Paul, through Epaphroditus, so he journeys to Rome. He stays with Paul for a while. While he's there, he gets sick. Word trickles back to Greece. Epaphroditus is sick, but he gets better, but they don't know that he gets better. And this is what he says in verse 25 of chapter 2. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Number six, Paul hopes to send Timothy for an update on how they are doing. Chapter two, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. So this is what is happening to Paul. This is what is happening to Philippians. These are the occasions for why he's writing this letter. And on the pages of this letter, we see an unrivaled radical focus on Jesus. There are three things I would love for you to write down before we leave this morning, things I hope you'll remember. Number one, I believe in Jesus for the sake of Jesus. I believe in Jesus for the sake of Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 29, we've read it. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. There is a sake that is attached to both the believing and the suffering. So Paul says, for the sake of Jesus, you believe in Jesus. He said something similar to the Ephesians from that exact same prison. He said that they've been adopted as sons to the praise of his glorious grace, meaning you believed in Jesus and you were adopted into the family of God. And why did that happen? So that God's glorious grace would be praised. He told the Ephesians that they hope in Christ 
to the praise of His glory. He also told them that they were sealed by the Holy Spirit when they believed in Jesus to the praise of Jesus' glory. Now this may seem a little odd or off to us. We might say, well, you know, no, I've, I believe in Jesus for my sake. I believe in Jesus because I needed forgiveness. Because I needed eternal life. Because I needed to be picked up off of rock bottom. I needed hope. I needed love. In the Gospels, we see people coming to Jesus for a long list of reasons. Some come because they want to hear authoritative and unique teaching. Some come because they want to be healed. Some to see miracles. Some for forgiveness. Some to even settle disputes. It's a very long list. But we also see a swelling and shrinking of crowds. Sometimes Jesus had many followers. Sometimes he just had a few followers. Even in John chapter 6, verse 66, you remember what it says? It says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. A swelling and shrinking of crowds. Now, I think any reason for coming to Jesus is a good reason. Whatever brought you here is a good reason to be here. But there will have to be a moment where your faith shifts. Where your faith is no longer driven by your and my felt needs. The things that we need. And our faith becomes driven simply because who Jesus is and what Jesus does. Why? Well, because as long as my faith is driven by what I need or what I feel I need, it will wax and wane according to my feelings because my feelings are never the same. Sometimes I feel like I need forgiveness and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I feel like I need a miracle. And sometimes things are really going well and I don't need any miracles. Sometimes I feel I need redemption because something bad has happened. And other times I look around and see only good things happening so I don't feel I need redemption. And as long as our faith is primarily driven by our feelings, what you and I will experience is a very up and down, hot and cold Present and away faith. But a, a shift has to happen where we say, you know, even my faith, that thing that is most personal to me, becomes less about me and it becomes more about Jesus. Consistency comes then. Why? Because Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it is a good thing for us to believe in Jesus. For Jesus' sake. Number two, I suffer for the sake of Jesus. Verse 29 of chapter 1, But also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Now remember the Apostle Paul, the first time he came to Philippi, he was arrested for his faith in Jesus. He was in the marketplace and there was a young girl there, a slave girl, the Bible says in Acts 16, who was harassing him. And the scripture says that Paul became greatly annoyed with her. And so he turned around and he demanded that this demon release her who had taken possession of her. And it happened just like that. 
Unfortunately, that demon had been giving her the ability to tell the future, and that had made a, a quite a bit of income for her slave owner, and so the slave owner became frustrated. So long story short, Paul and his friend Silas find themselves in prison in Philippi. And now Paul is writing to them years later saying, listen, you know what happened when I was with you, and you know this thing is still happening to me. I was in prison when I was with you, and I am in prison now that I am away from you. And he tells these people whom he loves, I mean, he's really the father of their faith, He was the first one to come into Philippi and preach about Jesus. He loves them with all of his heart and all of his soul. He tells them that their suffering on the account of Jesus is a gift that has been granted to them. That they should see their sufferings with Jesus as something they were not privileged to do before. But now, by God's grace, are privileged to do. Because there's this unique thing that when you suffer for Jesus, you are actually suffering with Jesus. And when you suffer with Jesus, that is a privilege. And with that privilege comes a supernatural joy. We see it in Paul. In chapter 3, he, he says he longs for, he looks forward to, he's trying to attain even the right to suffer with Christ. In Acts Chapter 5, verse 41, speaking of those original followers of Jesus who had been arrested for preaching about Jesus, it says, They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They didn't even say which name it was. We just all know what name it was. They, 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 they took joy because they had been counted worthy. It was a gift that had been granted to them that they should suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Jesus told us that this shouldn't be a surprise to us when we suffer on his account. John chapter 15 verse 20, he said, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. So if Jesus' steps lead to suffering, they will also lead to our suffering. So how did Jesus suffer? Well, first he was ridiculed. Do you remember even his own brothers ridiculed him? He was rejected. We've already seen in John chapter 6, verse 66, how a few people who counted themselves as disciples, who were committed, decommitted, and decided not to follow him any longer. He was betrayed by one of his own. He was denied by one of his own. Remember, I've, I've never met this man. I don't know who you're talking about. I've never seen him. Peter even says, I swear to God, I don't know who this man is. He was denied by one of his own. He was tortured. He was killed. And we have considered ourselves today Christians meaning followers of Jesus. So if Jesus goes to the left, then we go to the left. And if Jesus goes to the right, then we go to the right. And if he goes forward, we go forward. And listen, his steps will eventually lead to suffering because his steps lead straight to Calvary. A place of suffering. Listen, everybody, everybody would like to go up onto the mountain to hear the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody would. When Amanda and I lived in England, we got to go into the public school 
to teach in their religious education classes because everybody takes religious ed and they do an overview of the major religions of the world. And when they get to the section on Christianity, you know what they teach? They teach the Sermon on the Mount. Who wouldn't like to go up the mountain to hear that incredible sermon? Lots of people would like to go up on the mountain of transfiguration to see Jesus revealed in great power and great glory to be revealed as greater than even the greatest of heroes, Moses and Elijah. Lots of people would like to go up on that mountain. But what Paul is saying to us today is who is going to follow him up the mountain of suffering, the mountain of the cross, up Golgotha, the place of the skull? Who would be willing to sign up for that? I mean, honestly, we would like to meet them. We'd like to shake their hand and say, congratulations, you're better than I am. I mean, who would sign up for that ahead of time? Lots of people would look positively back in response. But who ahead of time would say, I know where Jesus' steps lead. And yet I'll go anyway. Well, Paul would. And he shows us why. Next thing I want you to write down. I count gain as loss. For the sake of Jesus. I count gain as loss for the sake of Jesus. Verse 7 of chapter 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now Paul is referencing a gain that is very specific. He mentions it at the beginning of chapter 3 in verses 4, 5, and 6. He says that he was circumcised on the eighth day. That means he had legit Jewish parents who were doing exactly what they were supposed to do according to their tradition. Circumcise their boys on the eighth day of their lives. He was of the people of Israel, he said in verse 5. He was born into God's covenant people. And uh, better than that, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, which came with a certain historic pride. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says, meaning he is Jewish through and through, people of God through and through. He was a Pharisee, he mentions, which in his hometown would have made him one of the most respected, the most educated, the most influential. He was a persecutor of the church. He was relentless in his devotion. We know now it's misguided, but it is full and it is strong. He was blameless in keeping the law, he said. What Paul would say to any crowd is, not one of you is more faithful than me. Now this specific list, it doesn't mean that much to us. It doesn't really resonate. But imagine your own list. Because this list of Paul's, it was what made him feel legitimate. It was what gave him confidence when he walked into a room. It doesn't mean that much to us because it's very specific to him. But we all have a resume of legitimacy that we cling to in all of our moments. So just ask yourself, when I walk into the office, what is it that makes me feel like I have a legitimate right to be there? What is it that gives me confidence when I show up? When I drop my kids off at school and all the moms are huddled there like wolves on prey. And I wonder, will I be the prey? I would really like to be the wolf. And you go for it and you're just going to pop in there and jam yourself into the conversation. What is it about you that gives you the confidence to do that? To say, this is what makes me feel legitimate in this circle. 
When you're driving down your street and you're looking at all the people, what makes you feel like you have the right to be there? I'm guessing for most of us, it's something around our money or it's around our possessions, or it's around our family, or it's around our personality. Because when we were young, we learned if we kind of let out ourselves with this, people like that. And so we fine-tuned it over the years. Maybe at church you feel legitimate because you do this, and you pray this much, or you read this book, or you can use this kind of language. What is it that makes you feel legitimate? Because what Paul is saying is all of the stuff that made me legitimate in my own eyes and in the eyes of everyone around me, I now count that as loss. At my university, you had to double major. So I have a Bible degree and I have an economics degree. If you're wondering why would you do an economics degree, well, I made a terrible mistake. That's why I have an economics degree. Economics is just math, but instead of numbers, they just jam the alphabet in there and expect you to add, subtract, divide, and multiply. A part of my economics degree, I had to take just a basic accounting class. And in accounting class, you learn what most of you already know about the financial statements of an institution. And there's all kinds of different ones, but one of them is called a P&L, or a profit and loss statement. Another way to say it is an income statement. And in the income statement, you essentially have two categories. On one side, you have all of the money that a business has taken in. So all of the money that you've made from the various avenues of your business, that's listed in the income. You've gained that money. And there's another column or another section, and that is for all of your expenses. These are all of your losses. These are your cost of doing business. And then they just add and subtract those two things together, and whatever you're left with is either a profit or a loss. Now what Paul is saying is totally radical. Because Paul is saying, listen, what I and everyone else I know used to list in the income side, in the gain side. I don't write that in that column anymore. I write it over here in the loss column. I count that as against me and not for me. Now, why? Why? Because his list... I mean, some of his list was sinful and bad. He was a persecutor of the church. That's bad. But some of it's just natural. It's neither positive or neutral, really. He was born of the tribe of Benjamin and of the people of Israel. He didn't, it wasn't a choice he made. It was just natural. Some of the list was even good. He was blameless in keeping the law. But he says all of it. I count all of it as lost. Why? Because it didn't help him towards Jesus. And he says, whatever doesn't help me towards Jesus gets listed in the lost column. And he takes it even a step further than that. He says, whatever doesn't help me towards Jesus, I consider as garbage. I mean, look at verse 8. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Now listen, I'm familiar with rubbish because I was once a garbage man. My very first semester of college, I needed a job. And so I went to the job department at my university and I sat down with somebody. Remember when you just could get a job by talking with somebody and it wasn't all virtual? And so I went in there and I talked with a lady and I said, I need a job. I'm looking for a part-time job. She said, explain to me your schedule. So I said, well, I go to class most of the day, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. But I've got all day Tuesday and all day Thursday 
clear, I can work all day. So she flipped around in her chair. She pulled out a drawer in her filing cabinet, pulled out an index card, handed it to me. She said, be there tomorrow at that time. And that time that was listed was an ungodly time. Like Jesus invented time, but he still hated that time. But I was excited because it was the landscaping crew. So when I showed up, before the sun even thought about waking up that next morning, I was excited because I thought, well, maybe they're going to put me on a lawnmower and I'll just cruise around all day on a lawnmower. Or maybe they'll, you know, give me a part of the campus and I'll get to be in charge of all the plants there. Or I get to water things or I was just excited. I'll get to drive around on a tractor. That'd be fantastic. But you know how this story goes. I walked in, they handed me a bucket and a claw. You know, the claw, the little pole with the thing on the end of it and the trigger at the top. Then they assigned me a zone section of campus that I was in charge of picking up all the garbage. And so that's what I did all day long. I just walked around my zone picking up trash. Sometimes there'd be a lot of trash. It'd be big. It'd be a cardboard box been blowing in the wind and ended up in the yard somewhere. And I'd have to find a way to dispose of that. Sometimes it'd be a dead animal, which I'm like, that's not really, I don't think that's like my department. I'd, you know, that's animal controls apartment. So I would leave it, but then I'd walk away and think, but what if my boss drives by and he sees like this dead fill in the blank? Like he's going to think he didn't even walk by here. Like what kind of person would not, so I'd have to do that and really scarred me. And so if any of you are a therapist, I'd like to meet this week. I had to pick up cigarette butts, sometimes big trash, rarely, occasionally dead animals, but always cigarette butts. I didn't even know people still smoke, but apparently when you registered at this university, they gave you your class schedule and a pack of cigarettes because they would smoke and they would just drop them on the ground. And it's always at the bottom of the steps of whatever academic building they were coming out of. So imagine this humiliation. You're on your knees picking up cigarette butts and class releases and people, your peers are walking down and they're there seeing you doing that. And I would always want to say to them like, hey, I'm you on Monday and Wednesday and Friday. You know, this is just my Tuesday, Thursday thing. But you don't need to know how to be a garbage man to know garbage. I mean, everybody knows some things belong on the wall and some things belong in the bin. Some things belong in that drawer that you keep stuff in. And some things belong at the curb. And, and what Paul is doing is, Paul is saying, hey, stuff I used to frame, stuff I used to frame and hang, I now put in the bin. Stuff I used to treasure and protect, I now put at the curb. I count it as rubbish. I count it as garbage. I think if Paul came in here today and he just wanted to have a little evaluation moment for me, I I think he would pull me aside and he'd say, you know, Curtis, you do a lot of great things, but the one thing that you do is you try to put just a bunch of Christmas bows on what belongs in the waste. You're just trying to decorate your trash so that it looks a little bit less like trash, but that stuff doesn't help you towards Jesus. So consider it garbage because we don't treasure garbage. We treasure what happened in the garbage, but we don't treasure garbage. We treasure what happened in the garbage because outside of Jerusalem, 
there's a garbage dump. And on one side of that dump, there was a hill. And the Roman government would crucify their criminals on that hill. So when the deed was done and death had come, they just take the bodies down off the cross and they'd throw them into the garbage. And it was there on that hill, on one side of the garbage dump, that Jesus stretched out his sinless hands to clean my sinful hands. It was there that he opened up his perfect life as a sacrifice for my imperfect life. So today is not about continuing to decorate things that we should consider rubbish or garbage and treasuring those. It's about treasuring what happened. The greatest moment in the history of the world happened on one side of a garbage dump. Paul says, so everything that doesn't get me towards that moment and towards Jesus, I list that in the loss column for me. And why do we consider them loss? He says in verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing means a seeking to know, an inquiry, an investigation. And knowing Jesus, there's an, an intention to it. There's a seeking to it. We're on a mission. There's a curiosity to it. There's a, a desire to know. There's a, a wondering. And then there's an investigation. I'm going to work to find these answers. I'll even sacrifice to find these answers because of how important it is. And how important is it, he says, for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Remember, Paul is not writing this letter to the Philippians from his prison cell in English. He's writing it in Greek, which was the marketplace language of the day. And our phrase, surpassing worth, is one Greek word, hooper echo. Hooper means above and echo means to hold. So surpassing worth means to hold above, which you experience this instinctively. Have you ever been carrying something valuable through a crowd, something glass, something important to you, maybe a child, and people are all around, what is your tendency going to be? It's going to be to lift it up in the air. I'm guessing most of us at some point this year are going to leave a football game, your favorite college team, or you're going to go and see the Texans one Sunday, and everybody's going to get out at the same time, and you're going to be there with your kids, and everybody's crunched together, and men, what are you going to do? You're going to pick up that little kid, and you're going to put them on your shoulders, because that's what we do with something valuable. We hold it above. Here's the main idea. Here's the takeaway for today. Why on earth would I orient my faith based on who Jesus is and not what I feel I need? Because I hold knowing Him up above what I need. Why on earth would I suffer for His sake? Why would I risk ridicule? Why would I risk? Why would you risk rejection? Why would we suffer? we hold knowing him up above my desire for easy living why would I list and count everything that makes me feel confident and legitimate as a loss because I hold and you hold knowing him up above my desire to feel legitimate. 
Paul, he plays this scenario all the way out. He says, I'm suffering right now in prison. As I write this to you, I'm suffering right now in prison. But let's just let this story unfold hypothetically. What if I died here? What if I am executed? What if I rot in jail for the sake of Jesus? He says this in chapter 1, verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Listen, that is a radical focus on Jesus. God, by your spirit, help us get there. Let's pray. Jesus said in the gospel of John that his sheep hear his voice and recognize his voice. And so would you just take a moment where you are to say through the power of the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit, Jesus, is there anything that you're saying to me today specifically, a specific way to apply? He says a sheep know his voice. Jesus, is there any step that you want me to take because of what we've read in your word today? God, this word feels high and lofty and unattainable. Feels almost impossible we know with you nothing is impossible so by your power help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only Jesus you said if we love you we'll keep your commands and we really want to do that so help us in Jesus name we pray amen